Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Tuesday, November the 10th. Coming up, a seniors advocate calling for a national standard of care for long-term care. Day one of the trial for Alex Manassian, the man accused of the 2018 Toronto van attack. And with promising vaccine news from Pfizer, talk is now turned to how it should be distributed. All that coming up next on The Pod. And we got new highs when it comes to COVID numbers in both the province and in the city of Toronto. And concern continues to grow for our most vulnerable seniors in long-term care. And that has got senior advocates wanting national standards of care established. And for more on that, let's welcome back to the program Laura Tamblin-Watts. She is the CEO of CanAge and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Laura, good afternoon. Thank you. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, First of all, can you give us a bit of an update, a snapshot as to where we are in regards to the second wave and the security of our seniors? Things are getting worse and not better, and that is a hard thing to look at as we're entering our second wave. You know, in Ontario, we're seeing numbers climb to, to you know hugely high rates, some of the highest we've ever had in community, and we're seeing a similar rise as well in long-term care. We can look across this country and see that some provinces are entering a crisis state like Manitoba. So we are not yet as prepared as we need to be as we're entering the second wave. What number concerns you the most? Is it the caseload? Is it the infection rate, which, uh, by the way, is 5.7 today? I believe that's the highest we've seen uh, in the province of Ontario. Do you look at specific numbers, or do they all concern you? In this case, they all concern me. Uh, There's not one really good set of numbers that we have seen. We've seen some initiatives from the provincial government, which are good in the sense that there's some movement now in staffing hiring, but we waited for months to do the staffing uptake that we knew that we needed to do. We know as well as we're coming into the fall that the amount of money that long-term care homes have been provided is about a half of what they need in actually to do infection prevention and control. And while we're hand-wringing about some of the issues from a regulatory perspective, you know, we haven't had yet movement from the federal government to release the needed funds to the provinces. We do think that national care standards are what's needed, but we need to move on them more quickly than we're doing. Okay, I want to ask you about those standards in a second, but why is it taking so long for this money to come from the federal government? It's unusual for the provincial government to lean into, sorry, it's unusual for the federal government to lean into provincial jurisdiction. Not that they never have done it before, but as you can imagine, it's a sensitive issue. It does require that the federal government work with all the provinces and territories to come up with a plan and a strategy. This we understand, but there could be a provisional transfer of money in advance of that to meet on an emergency basis, and we haven't seen that. So we're recommending a two-step approach, have the federal government transfer needed funds now for things that we already know are needed, and then start working on the national quality care standards and tether money to that on a longer-term basis. Okay, I ask that because I'm wondering if our leaders, our officials, are they dragging their feet on this much like maybe they did, as you just indicated a second ago, between the first wave and the second wave and not putting in what are much-needed procedures earlier? Yes, that's exactly what's happening. We have seen, you know, what I would say is a thoughtful pause from provinces in August and September when what was needed was really boots on the ground. 
action. Certainly, we know that the back-to-school issue was a real one for many people, many families, but that took needed attention away from seniors and long-term care. We needed to be able to do both of those things. As we're seeing our numbers climb, we need to make sure that we're getting things like promises from our governments that rapid testing will be prioritized for long-term care, and we need to make sure that when folks are reaching out for help, that they're getting the help that they're needed. And right now, that's not what's happening, even though they are connected with hospitals. Hospitals are requiring a formal order in order to help, and that's not what we meant to have happen. All right, let's talk a bit about this national standard of care that you and others are uh, asking for. Just exactly what would you like to see? How would it help? In Australia, they have a very similar model to ours. They have a division between federal government and provinces. They call it Commonwealth and State. They have a national regulator with real ability to regulate in the sector, with the ability to establish the national quality care standards for things like staffing numbers, staffing hours, things like infrastructure, so no more rooms with four people in it divided by a curtain and shared bathing facilities for 20 or 30 people, but actually standards for what infrastructure should look like, things like sprinklers, things like air conditioning, and to make sure that we have the right mix of funding and professionals there, not just downloading everything to personal support workers, but making sure we have doctors and nurses and physiatrists. So we have an excellent model in a federated government, and their outcomes in COVID-19 and long-term care, a handful of deaths compared to ours, which has been absolutely atrocious. You know, it's interesting you point to Australia from a long-term care perspective because a lot of folks are also pointing to them when it comes to the lockdown and how that kind of curbed the uh, second wave. They had a second lockdown uh, there in Australia. Is that what long-term care and our seniors need? Do we need to really kind of nip this in the bud before, uh, I mean, I don't want to suggest the numbers aren't out of control maybe already. I mean, they certainly are concerning and are growing, going in the wrong direction, but before this really gets out of control? We need to make sure that we balance the response, which I think that as we're going to be looking at our province's response, we're going to need much more in terms of shutdowns. I do believe that. In terms of things like long-term care, though, we can never close the doors the way that we did before. It's just too detrimental to residents and caregivers. We know that people uh, were being kept, and I use the term safe, uh, but they were kept apart from their essential family caregivers and in many cases had worse outcomes than not. So we know that we can keep essential family caregivers in, in personal protective equipment safe and supported. We need to make sure that we do that. But again, the missing piece here is making sure there's adequate PPE and rapid testing for everyone that comes in, out or works or lives in long-term care. Rapid testing will be the game changer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because as it stands right now, you've got to go for, I think, one of those swab, those nasal tests every 14 days if you're a family caregiver and wait for those results to come. Uh, rapid testing certainly would be an improvement and would help uh, PSWs and those in long-term care if uh, that was instituted and instituted now. We, we think that rapid testing will be critical. And again, the funds are needed going to flow for that. So instead of just waiting for one big solution, let's respond on an as-need basis with federal funding and supports. The reality is we have the recipe for improvement in long-term care. Let's get some transitory funding from the feds to the provinces to do it. 
while we build the bigger long-term care quality standards. And again, looking at the Australian model to make sure our regulator has the teeth to inspect and suspend. I know you got to go, but I have to ask you this just uh, quickly. Are you optimistic uh, that we're going to stem the tide this time around? We're not going to repeat uh, history when it comes to long-term care? I think it entirely depends on what we do in the next two months. I think it depends on whether or not we take this matter seriously and move forward with the investments or whether it's more lip service. All right, Laura, thank you as always for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Laura Tamblin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge. We say this every time we talk about this, but we promised we would stay on this topic, and we are staying on this issue and on this topic. We have to because status quo is not good enough. We have to do better when it comes to our most vulnerable, our seniors, and long-term care. The trial of Alex Manassian got underway today. He's the 28-year-old accused of killing 10, injuring 16 in the now infamous Toronto van attack back in 2018. Dave Woodard of Global News is watching the proceedings for us, and he has this report. The incel rebellion has begun. We will overthrow all Chads and Stacys. That was a Facebook post that Alec Manassian admits he sent just moments before driving a rented cargo van onto the sidewalk and running over pedestrians. The Crown read out some of the damage he caused and went into great detail, sometimes showing video or photographs of the victims and injuries they suffered or where they died. These details Manassian's lawyers are not denying. Their defense will focus on Manassian's frame of mind at the time of the attack, with psychologists and psychiatrists expected to testify from both sides over the four-week trial. Dave Woodard, Global News. All right, thank you, Dave. Lawrence Ben-Eliezer is 640 Toronto's legal expert, and he joins us for more on this now here on Global News Radio. Lawrence, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Manassian has pleaded not criminally responsible. Uh, Could you explain that for us just first off? Yes, um, absolutely. The criminal code and criminal litigation in general uh, sets out a few criteria, a few basic tests for determining what happens to an accused. So in order to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, there are two elements. One is called the actus reus, which basically means the required prohibited act, in this case, killing people, and the mental element, which is the intent behind it. Uh, The Crown has to prove both elements beyond a reasonable doubt in order to secure a finding of guilt or a conviction. And those are two different things. But in this particular case, there is no issue with the first branch, that is the actus reus. Mr. Manassian, through his counsel, has uh, submitted an agreed statement of facts in which he admitted to planning and carrying out uh, these actions. There's no question about how the deceased died as the result of being hit by the van and how others were injured as the result of being hit by the van. And there's no disputing that at some point uh, Mr. Manassian planned what he was doing. So the real question is, was Mr. Manassian's uh, mental state in a medical sense almost, was it such that he was able to appreciate the nature and quality of his actions. So some simple examples would be if he had voices in his head, uh, if he was delusional, if there was something that basically ripped him away from reality long enough to commit these acts. And if so, if the acts were beyond his control, then he is not criminally responsible 
by reason of mental defect. So does that mean, Lawrence, that he could eventually be found guilty of the charges, guilty of the crimes, but not punished because of uh, his state of mind or his mental health? In a loose sense, yes. But let's sort of take a step back. If he is found not criminally responsible, then he is remitted to the custody of the um, lieutenant governor under the mental and uh, into the custody of mental health providers who will assess him and determine what, if anything, is to be done with him. Is he to be institutionalized in a hospital? And if so, for how long? The 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 matter will not be over by any means. It's just that he will not have been found guilty under the criminal code. All right. The uh, burden, of, burden of proof, sorry, as we all know, of course, is uh, not on the accused, uh, but on the prosecution, uh, those uh, prosecuting the uh, crime. But does it kind of flip here when you're uh, pleading not criminally responsible? Does Manassian's lawyer have to prove his mental state at the time? Absolutely uh, correct, Jeff. First of all, the criminal code specifically provides that a person who is charged with an offense is presumed to not be suffering from any mental defect. In other words, presumed to be in control of their faculties. And the burden of proof is on the accused to prove that he is he was suffering from a relevant uh, mental defect or disease at the time. And the uh, standard of proof is on the balance of probabilities. It is not beyond a reasonable doubt, so it's not as high as the Crown is required to prove in order to secure a conviction. It's a balance of probabilities, but what will happen in this case, I anticipate, is that it'll come down to a battle of experts. I was going to say, are you expecting in the days and weeks to come uh, just a a laundry list of mental health experts, psychiatrists, and the such testifying? I wouldn't call it a laundry list, Jeff. I would call it um, witnesses on both sides who will give their best expert opinion evidence as to what Mr. Manassian's state of mind was at the time that this happened. And uh, Justice Malloy will have to sort through and given the nature of the defense, rule on whether Mr. Manassian has proved on a balance of probabilities that he was not guilty by reason of mental defect. Yeah, does this, Lawrence, have to be somebody who has been treating Mr. Manassian on an ongoing basis? I mean, just how credible is the testimony of a mental health official, a doctor or expert who comes forward after the fact? It's very credible, Jeff, depending on the expert and the thoroughness of the uh, of the work done by that expert to assess uh, Mr. Manassian. It doesn't have to be somebody who's been treating him. In fact, for a long time, there was an argument that uh, practitioners who treat the accused for a long time may have a built-in bias that would prevent them from acting as truly independent uh, uh, expert witnesses. And let's remember that it is uh, that an expert witness has a legal obligation to be impartial. They must give their evidence impartially and in accordance with the requirements of their particular discipline. You can't just show up and, and say something. It has to be based, in this case, in science and uh, accepted by the court. So these experts who will testify will first have to be qualified. Uh, the court will have to determine that they are entitled to give opinion evidence as experts. And then each side will have a chance to present uh, their witnesses and 
cross-examine the other side's witnesses. I'm sure reports have been exchanged, and everyone's ready to go. All right, this trial is uh, being held virtually over Zoom, like so many trials. You and I have spoken about this in the uh, not-too-distant uh, past. And uh, this is much to the demay of some of the victims' uh, families, uh, Lawrence. Should this trial have been held over? Should we have waited until uh, we could have done this uh, in person? Or is it uh, okay to do this uh, over Zoom, do you think? My preference as a defense counsel is always to have in-person trials. This, these are uncharted waters. So on the one hand, and I'm sure that, uh, that defense counsel would also uh, have preferred to have this as an in-person matter, as probably would the Crown and the judge. However, uh, first, I, I take a serious exception with the use of the word victims in this case. This is a legal, this, uh, a matter of criminal litigation between Her Majesty the Queen and Mr. Manassian. The deceased, the injured, and their families, uh, I know what the criminal code says, but uh, it is, in my view, inappropriate to call them victims. I'm sure they'd like to confront him in court and glare at him and stare at him. And I'm sure that if that were to happen, that his lawyers would have told Mr. Manassian, just ignore them. Don't don't react. Don't uh, don't show that it's having any impact on you. That's the advice I give my clients. Um, it, It is. And there's some serious issues about whether someone who committed these types of acts would even be affected by it. Maybe the families of the deceased and the injured and their friends and loved ones would derive some benefit from it. Okay, that's understandable. But as a matter of trial fairness, uh, it, is, it is my view that it, it doesn't really matter. And that the, the frustration of the families of the deceased is really not something with which I would concern myself as a defense lawyer. I'm there to defend my client, and that's it. We will be watching this, of course, as the rest of the city will be with great interest. Day one of the Manassian trial today. Lawrence Ben Eliezer, thanks so much as always. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Jeff. And to put a wrap on things for this Tuesday for us, let's say welcome in. She's one of our favorites, physician and vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, I want to get to the Pfizer vaccine in just a second. But first, I want your take on today's numbers. we got a record high in Toronto, a record high once again in the province. And we were expecting there was a press conference last hour with both Premier Ford and Mayor Tory. Everybody thought we were going to get news about maybe a lockdown of some sort for Toronto or increased restrictions. That might be coming later this week. Is that, from a medical standpoint, what we need to hear to get these numbers down? Well, let's face it, the numbers are higher than they've ever been. So I think we're braced to hear such lockdowns. I think such lockdowns have worked for us in the past. But these are ultimately epidemiological questions that we rely on our public health officials to answer. It will certainly be of help when we have rapid testing in place for all of us. But is there any doubt in your mind that Toronto is going to go the way of Peel Region, who got out of modified stage two, of course, on the weekend, but then went with uh, local restrictions? They uh, reinstituted some restrictions there? I think we can anticipate higher restrictions than what we currently have. What's concerning is that despite all of the recommendations, we still see so many people not wearing masks. And what I, what I, it, 
it gets your dander up, you know, because elders who are most at risk are the ones who are best at wearing masks, whereas many of the young people still don't understand the very serious risks that COVID-19 could, in fact, present to them. I wanted to ask you as well, since we are talking in numbers, numbers here, sorry, about the infection rate or the positivity rate, because it now stands at 5.7%. How concerning is that? 5.7% puts us at the highest infectivity rate we've seen so far. You know, so in the past, turn the clock back, say, a year, the infectivity rate was far, far less. So as time is going on, we're seeing higher infectivity rates, and those infectivity rates are indicative of it going even higher than that. So what's concerning is that without additional lockdown measures, we can reasonably expect those numbers to be higher still. All right. Underscoring, obviously, the need for a vaccine. And we got what the prime minister called yesterday, some uh, positive news, some good news out of a Pfizer that a a vaccine they've been developing has been a little over 90 percent effective. Uh, How excited as a vaccine researcher are you to hear about this? I was about ready to dance in the streets when I heard those numbers. But then I kept myself in check, realizing that the announcement is coming from the company that made it, number one, and that, number two, that's not really peer-reviewed yet. So we look forward to independent scientific review. The other thing about it is is that they're not even at their target number of cases just yet. So they're targeting 164 COVID cases, and they have 94 so far. So that's about 57% of the target, which is actually pretty good, but we don't have actual numbers to go on. What we know is that there are no serious safety signals. So it's encouraging, but we still have to wait. We also don't know how long the immunity will last from such a vaccine, and that's not a small problem. Yeah. Was the company a little premature, do you think, in issuing this uh, presser then? You know, the world is waiting for any information, and you can see how rapidly everyone bit into it. The fact is, this is one of the vaccines that Canada has invested into. So we've invested into seven vaccinations. We've purchased 20 million doses of this particular product. And it's a, it's no money back guarantee. <laughs> so if it doesn't work, we've lost that money. But then on the other hand, if it does work, well, Canada stands quite a bit to gain. So we've purchased some 20 million doses for a population that's pushing 40 million. So do the math. I'm not quite sure how that'll work, but clearly if it were to be something... If it were to be approved, which is not a guarantee, then seniors and frontline workers, I would imagine, would be the first priority for it. Well, that was my very next question, is because I think the talk has now turned to not if a vaccine, but uh, when, as Pfizer is uh, promising, uh, at least has got promising results on this uh, vaccine so far. So the conversation, Dr. Gorfinkel, has now turned to just exactly how should those doses be distributed? I'll share something with you. What I find very concerning is that if what we see in the flu shot realm, is to be a dress rehearsal for the COVID-19 vaccine. And notice what's happened. Toronto Public Health has run out of high-dose flu shots, right? So this is a matter of good inventory control. So what I look forward to are robust vaccine registries where when people do get it, it's barcoded so we can keep track of who has had what, when, and where so we can better match vaccine distribution to the outbreaks of where they're happening. And that'll be a critical a critical form of our success. 
All right. Good stuff as always. I got to leave it there for now. Dr. Gorfinkel, thank you as always for your time. It's much appreciated. Many thanks, Jeff. All the best. Be well. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, physician and vaccine researcher. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.